probably one of the greatest accomplishments of neoliberal social science has been its conflation of where individuals fall within a distribution of risk with where the the mean of the entire risk distribution is. You're essentially mapping social arrangements and the operation of social systems onto individuals and then claiming that, that it's inherent to the individual. death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we couldn't do any of this without you to support the show become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod you'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pick up a copy of health communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at death panel underscore so today I'm here with my co-host, Jules Gilpeterson. Hello. And we are joined by returning guest and friend of the panel, Seth Prince. Seth is a psychiatric epidemiologist and assistant professor of epidemiology and sociomedical sciences at Columbia University. Seth's research centers around the collateral consequences of mass criminalization and mass incarceration for public health and on how the division and structure of labor affect mental illness and drug use. And we've asked Seth here today to talk to us about his work on something called criminogenic risk assessment. Seth, welcome back to the show. It's so great to have you on the death panel again. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be back. So today we're going to talk about this supposedly evidence-based data-driven tool that the criminal justice system uses to impose efficiency on the processes of identifying, sorting, and targeting criminalized people. Criminogenic risk assessment is when statistical methods are used to predict what will happen to someone in the legal system and after and place them into specific categories supposedly to sort of, you know, manage criminal justice resources better, you know, et cetera, et cetera, with the goal being, in theory, that this reduces crime by targeting specific criminalized populations and people, as well as targeting aspects of criminalized people themselves, like their thoughts, attitudes, and personality traits that are believed to contribute to criminal behavior, and then focusing the most resources, restriction, and confinement on those with the highest scores. So local, state, and federal criminal justice agencies in the United States have increasingly adopted this tool at many different levels of our system of mass incarceration over the last four decades, going way beyond its original intended use case into all sorts of other different parts of the system that someone experiences when they're criminalized. This kind of data-driven risk assessment is sold as more efficient, of course, um, as a way to, you know, help aid various actors within the prison industrial complex to make use of those quote-unquote limited resources. And boosters of criminogenic risk assessment will tell you and have produced a large body of work that purports to prove that, quote, actuarial risk assessment consistently emerges as superior to professional judgment. That quote is, by the way, from the U.S. Department of Justice's website. But, (laughs) Seth, for almost 10 years now, 
you've been working to try and evaluate whether what the field says about criminogenic risk assessment is actually consistent with what the evidence says about criminogenic risk assessment. And you and your various collaborators over the years have carefully constructed a pretty airtight empirical case that is highly critical of these tools and types of risk analysis, their use and implementation, and the assumptions that they naturalize. So to start us off, let's go to the very beginning. Can you explain for listeners what a criminogenic risk analysis or risk score is? Sure. So criminogenic risk assessment is based on research, empirical research that uh, identifies strong individual level predictors of rearrest or reincarceration, what they refer to as recidivism, typically among people who are being released from prison. So the the, the framework was developed as sort of like a reentry planning and co- community correction supervision tool. Um, and so basically what the early, uh, er- early originators of of these risk assessment tools did was looked at lots of data on the characteristics of people who were being released from prison. They basically found the things that were most strongly associated in those data and then constructed a theory of criminogenic risk based on those uh, predictors. And so the, the, the kind of originators refer to it themselves as sort of like a radical empirical approach, um, <laughs> uh, essentially an inductive approach to, mm-hmm. you know, th- they saw what was associated in the data, things like um, having a history of arrest, substance use, um, being impulsive, you know, this, this emerged out of, of psychology. So it was tended to be a lot of uh, psychological constructs uh, that sort of resided in inside of people. Um, and yeah, they, they found, you know, the strongest correlations, usually with pretty crude statistical measures. And then that sort of morphed into this, what we what, what they call now an evidence-based practice of, of using <laughs> these these pre- predictors to sort of explain the origins of, of, of crime or criminal behavior, as, as they call it. I really appreciate the way that you frame that as not just a tool for assessment and sorting, but also really, this is an attempt at storytelling, too, about what the causes of crime are. And this is part of a kind of larger process that's called like what the risk need responsibility model. And so it's one tool. And it's something that in theory, you know, looks at these very specific aspects of behavior. Can we get into some of what those are that mm. are supposed to be, you know, the origin of all crime? <laughs> sure. So, yeah, it's it's the risk need responsivity model uh, of, of correctional assessment and rehabilitative programming. Um, so, so this model is basically composed of uh, or comprises empirical evidence for predictors of rearrest and reincarceration, and then this theory of behavior that's inductively derived from those predictors, and also um, a set of like normative principles that are that are meant to guide correctional practice. Um, and so historically, the, the big four, what they called the big four factors that were consistently associated with rearrest and reincarceration were a history of antisocial behavior, antisocial personality pattern, antisocial cognitions, um, and antisocial associates. 
Um, they also expanded those to include other factors like substance use, difficulty maintaining uh, jobs and employment, and, and other other factors that they sort of added on. But but the, the big four were sort of the original the, the original uh, constructs that all centered around these antisocial you know antisocial characteristics, so called antisocial characteristics. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for folks who might not know how that word is used clinically, can we also talk about, like, mm -hmm. within the literature, what antisocial means? Because there's obviously the popular sort of cultural meaning of it, or, you know, there's also like a disparaging meaning of it when you use it to like accuse another person of being antisocial. But there's also like a specific clinical meaning that itself is actually kind of vague, right? Yeah. So, you know, antisocial personality disorder is is a disorder in the, the DSM. Um, a lot of this criminogenic risk assessment work was built on the DSM-4 and the, the DSM-3 even, but, but mostly the DSM-4. And so the DSM-4 definition of antisocial personality disorder is pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others that occur since, you know, 15 or 18 years old. Um, and then there's like this list of, of symptoms, so-called, that you have to have a like three, three or more of. So failure to conform to social norms and, and with respect to law, lawful behaviors uh, indicated by sort of getting arrested a lot. So that that's a key thing that we can come back to is sort of the the outcome uh, is contained in the definition of, of the predictor. Um, deceitfulness, lying, um, impulsivity, irritability, aggressiveness, reckless disregard for the safety of others, consistent irresponsibility, uh, like indicated by like not being able to s sustain a job or honor financial obligations, lacking remorse, and so on. So those, like ha having like three out of uh, out of those seven things can can get you diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. And then, of course, there are there, there are sort of like broader non-diagnostic understandings of antisocialness and antisocial personality. But um, that that's kind of the clinical usage. And I, and I would say that it's still a contested like like lots of personality disorders. It's still sort of a contested category. Right. And I think the thing that's also important here is that you know, the framing of what antisocial even is, is also really open to interpretation because it is characterized by being in opposition or out of sync with quote unquote normal societal norms. And obviously one of the ways that we're thinking about it and talking about this is in terms of like how mental illness labels are used against all sorts of populations in order to, you know, deny access to care, restrict care, criminalize them. Um, deny housing, deny employment, deny healthcare, regardless of like the reason, these kinds of ideas about the source of crime and the kinds of behaviors that almost become naturalized as a kind of biological destiny through various empirical systems that seek to kind of connect the dots here in a way that doesn't necessarily pan out when you start to like look under the hood. Yeah, absolutely. And so like in the DSM-5, uh, they, they, I think more explicitly acknowledge that these they say that these these uh, this personality functioning and, and expressions of these traits are not better understood as normative um, for the individual's developmental stage or sociocultural environment. So there's this kind of underhanded acknowledgement that all of this is like socially relative and socially yeah. normative. Um, but I think that that gets quite lost in the in the risk assessment tools 
to which it's applied. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, yeah, if looping this back to the sort of evidence-based drive, I mean, I'm just sort of curious then, yeah, if part of how the production of assessments and, and statistical analyses works is to produce a certain you know, objective account that can kind of filter out, you know, a lot of different kinds of noise and maybe one of those kinds of noise that that DSM, you know, caveat is trying to deal with is that this, the social norms or rules that can be broken and the kinds of behaviors coded as antisocial just dramatically shift, you know, over time. Um, but, you know, there's sort of a, a maybe a drive towards producing something that is more durable or imagined to be independent. I mean, could you give a little context about, yeah, just sort of what it means for this push towards a kind of evidence based sort of field of research that's supposed to create very, very specific, obviously, tools and have really specific policy outcomes? How does that sort of evidence based drive sit alongside this kind of psychiatric diagnostic DSM world? Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a really good question. And I would, I would just say that I think critical psychologists and psychiatrists would acknowledge that these are like relational constructs, right? They're, they're beholden to, to changes in social and legal norms about what constitutes criminalized behavior versus not criminalized behavior, also political and economic conditions. And, mm-hmm. um, but what's really interesting, I think, is that, you know, antisocial personality disorder uh, is structured by social disadvantage. Um, so it's much more prevalent among people with low incomes, low educations, people who have more, you know, trauma, more stressful life, life events, um, and people experience homelessness. So like, it's very difficult to, to I think, separate um, the, the the sort of social drivers of these characteristics from the this idea that comes out of this sort of psychological origins of this framework that that these are all sort of things that emerge from inside of the minds of deviant or abnormal people, um, <laughs> which I think, it, you know, um, and, and I think one way in which they kind of sidestep this or ignore it is that, you know, if if if, if antisocial personality uh, disorder or even characteristic of, anti, of antisocial personality were drivers of crime, then you would expect to see sort of tons of people in the criminal legal system with antisocial personality disorder. But in fact, we've seen since uh, the the rise of mass incarceration, the number of people or the, the proportion of people with antisocial personality diagnoses um, has decreased, um, which which I think uh, uh, just speaks to this idea that obviously there are drivers of criminalization and incarceration that have nothing to do with individual personality or individual risk profiles. Um, and this this whole framework kind of would rather not talk about that. Um, <laughs> I love the way you just put that. <laughs> it's, you know, I think that the this whole framework itself is a way of avoiding talking about the structural aspects and the social relational aspects of who is criminalized and why and what circumstances led them to be criminalized in the first place. I'm thinking back to um, the conversation I had with Mon M and Diana Joy about the No New Jails campaign in New York's fight against opening like a new feminist jail and sort of wrestling with, uh, you know, liberal carceral feminist organizers and the way that that was really difficult. And one of the things Diana said in that interview is she's she was saying, you know, it's like 
so much of the conversation in the policy sphere and so many of these tools and so much of the focus of people who who really look at this and purport to be experts on criminal behavior and preventing crime they're never talking about the things that happen upstream that happen in someone's life way before they even get to the point that they're criminalized and you know she was saying as an abolitionist one of the most important things for me is to really focus on all of the stuff that happens before you have that criminalizing encounter which is you know so important and often completely ignored and neglected in the broader sort of mainstream cultural conversation around mass incarceration and crime at all in general. In terms of like how these risk scores are constructed and then used, can you talk a little bit about how the system uses them, like where they originated, what their original use was, and then kind of like how they've spread and really burst past the boundaries of what they were intended to do, which also like we should get into the fact that they don't do what they were intended to do as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, you know, I think like many, uh, like, like many tools like this um, and many movements, honestly, uh, the origins of this were actually progressive at the time, right? So the idea mm -hmm. what these psychologists um, were sort of the reformers of their time who saw that judges and probation and parole departments were just like, you know, the, I think the phrase was like trail them, nail them, jail them, right? There was just no regard for, you know, helping people re-enter after, uh, mm -hmm. re-enter their communities after they were released from prison. And so these psychologists said like, you know, we should reform this, these these judges and like that, I mean, that's what kind of they referred to as clinical judgment. Like the judgment of these judges was just completely arbitrary and biased mm. um, and, and racist and so forth. And so let's develop a sort of, rehabilitatively informed tool. Um, and at the time, I think, you know, they thought what they were doing was rehabilitative and compared to compared to the sort of standard practice at the time, it, it, it was uh, or had could, could have been uh, rehabilitative. Um, let's like assess people's risk and not supervise low risk people the same, you know, let's not, let's not like over supervise low risk people. And for high risk people, let's you know, connect them to resources and um, really inv invest our supervision on those folks. Um, of course, what ended up happening was that, as is the case with lots of these sorts of, of reforms that start out sort of liberal and, and rehabilitative, is that the the resources for supporting never followed. It was just the the supervision, right? And, and so it mm -hmm. was just like um, it, it just became a classification system for like who needs to check in with their probation officer more often than 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 someone else, right? So that's sort of uh, the origins of these tools and. You know, that, then they started, you know, so, so the basic idea is that you, you know, a lot of these tools are sort of black boxes to the public. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you get, you know, they have all of these factors like arrest history, uh, employment, drug use, so forth. And then they weight, you know, they weight those various items uh, in an often proprietary way for the, for the risk instrument. And then it spits out a score and then you get classified as low, medium, high risk, or maybe there's four categories of risk or whatever. And then um, your supervision plan depends on on that on those categories. Um, and in theory, this is supposed to, you know, as you said, make supervision more efficient and, and effective. Um, that's not necessarily what happens in, in practice. Um, <laughs> and, and this tool that was developed 
So all of these statistical associations that are used to spit out the risk score were developed in samples of people that were already criminalized. They were mm-hmm. already exposed to the legal system. They were moving through, uh, they, they had already spent time in jails or prisons. And the big problem uh, is that there's been this move to kind of take the same model and apply it to different parts of the system. So like pretrial detention, um, you know, they use risk instruments now to predict, you know, how much pretrial detention to set people, somebody should get it to set bail and so forth. Um, and they're even trying to move these tools to you know, like predictive policing in the front end of the system. The tools are not identical, obviously, and they, they bring in other factors. And, but the, but the whole idea of like, you know, basing a predictive algorithm on a sample of people who's already been criminalized uh, and everything that that entails and implies um, and then using and then saying like, oh, so this is the these factors are like the origins of criminal behavior is like a huge like conceptual and theoretical and methodologically problematic leap. Yeah, I I wonder if could you even tell us even more about that? I mean, this is one of the things as uh a justice-oriented nerd that, you know, really, uh, <laughs> I was really fascinated to in, in reading your work, you know, could you maybe help us sort of parse those different ways that this, that move doesn't make sense, right? You said it's like a methodological problem in and of itself to take, you know, one population of people who've been already criminalized and use them as a model for, you know, say for policing on the front end or for, yeah, pretrial procedure for someone who's been arrested. Um, you know, what, what sort of the methodological quandary there and, and then how do you sort of see stacked on top of that, the kind of, um, yeah, larger, you know, social, political, moral problem with doing that? Sure. So and I'll say that, that part of this this sort of path of research, like I is what really it was sort of part of my journey to abolition and becoming an abolitionist mm-hmm. was sort mm-hmm. of seeing really seeing how the system, even the sort of purported uh, rehabilitative aspects of the system, were actually kind of embedding embedding assumptions about criminalization into their agenda. But so so methodologically, right? Like if you have a group of people that's already incarcerated. Um, That means they've already been arrested, they've already been arraigned, they've already um, spent time in jail, they've spent time in prison, they've been exposed to the, like, horrific harms and traumas of incarceration, their social networks, family, like, their their communities have been destroyed, basically, their their families have been destroyed, their job prospects have been destroyed, and then they get released into the community with maybe a bus ticket, maybe an appointment um, with a probation officer, maybe an appointment with, you know, maybe their Medicaid has been, you know, in the process of being uh, reinstated. So maybe they've got their like prescriptions covered or maybe they don't. Um, And then we send them into the community and we assign them a category of risk uh, for like getting rearrested or getting reincarcerated. And and, and then we say that, oh, these are the the, among that group of people. These are the factors that are most associated with them getting rearrested or reincarcerated. And so the premise of then moving, moving that tool to a different part of the system, right, to like policing or pretrial detention, is like, oh, the, the risk profile, so-called, of that person will be the same as someone who hasn't um, mm. ha- had that experience of going through the, the criminal legal system, right? Maybe it's someone's first arrest, or maybe it's, you know, someone's second arrest, or maybe they haven't spent time in prison, but they've spent time in jail. 
So, so just the idea that um, the the sort of statistical associations associated with the first person uh, being rearrested or, or reincarcerated represent like the origins of criminal behavior, which is what they say, is is sort of uh, backwards, right? It's sort of mm-hmm. uh, and and part of what my what some of my research has shown is that actually, if you look at people who have moved through the criminal legal system compared to those uh, who haven't, like the criminal legal system actually increases people's scores on a lot of those those risk prediction uh, items, which is not, you know, it's really surprising to nobody, right? Like that this idea, this idea that if you take people and put them in horrific, traumatic conditions and basically destroy their social and personal lives, like that they might score higher on some of the things that might predict future arrest, for example. Um, and then applying those same things to someone who's maybe never is experiencing like their first arrest or whatever. And so this is where methodologically it breaks down because it's not the right comparison group, but it's also like the the role of history of arrest is so strong in these prediction models. Um, so basically like, you know, the, the getting, having a history of arrest is one of the strongest predictors of getting rearrested. And so that is kind of a circular, a circular definition of criminalization and uh, incarceration. Um, and then the other thing that I think is just important to note is that orig- there's also methodologically kind of a mess um, between how they define recidivism, right? Whether it's defined as rearrest or reincarceration or simply as um, having someone's uh, probation or parole revoked for a technical violation, which has nothing to do mm-hmm. with like a new criminal, so-called criminal behavior, right? Like if you miss an appointment, you might have your probation revoked. And so that's not like an illegal behavior. It's just kind of the discretion of the the probation officer. Um, mm-hmm. So all of these things are going into, are, are what this, what these risk assessment tools were built on. And then they're sort of being applied to different populations. Um, so this idea that these predictors are, are the causes of criminal behavior really sort of breaks down both methodologically and conceptually. And I think like methodologically too, like the statistics that are used to, to generate the associations are like often inappropriate. The the sort of quality of the empirical research that's gone into this evidence base is quite weak and not, you know, not as strong as its proponents claim it is. Um, so yeah, there, there, there's a lot of methods issues. And then the the conceptual issues, of course, are this idea that criminal behavior emerges from inside of people's brains and not uh, a function of like the social conditions that they are living in and the way in which police are targeting them, which I think is, is something else that these folks kind of don't want to, they, they kind of explicitly say like, we're not really concerned with, with that stuff. When it seems like part of how the research is being applied is like precisely producing that false impression in the first place, mm-hmm. right? Like taking this yeah. one set and using it to, to criminalize entire populations of people reinforces the idea that those populations of people, whether they're sorted by race, class, or whatever, right, are are inherently somehow more criminal when in fact, like, yeah. So it's just sort of interesting. I mean, that's what I love about, like, how ideas, you know, get translated, you know, into practice and sort of find that gap in data uh, where like, oh, the data here, you know, there are methodological issues, but also there's the way that the data is being interpreted and applied doesn't really follow from what the data itself even says. And that's just such a powerful form of, of 
critical counter evidence to be able to mobilize, especially when you work inside the field and you, um, you know, speak its its idioms so well. Yeah, it's just it's. Uh, thanks for breaking that down for us because I think it's just such a a powerful example. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was wondering if you could expand on a little bit too is so I'm thinking specifically there's a a meta analysis that you co-authored. I know it was a number of years ago now, but um, one of the things that you and your co-author broke down was sort of like a broad range of studies, both critical of these kinds of assessments and boostering, you know, positive, Mm -hmm. broad, huge claims about the assessments. And I want to kind of get into like what you found there. But before we do that, do you think you could talk through like who some of the big figures are who push this idea and sort of how they sell it and how that sort of becomes like sucked up by, you know, politicians who don't understand the tools that they're being sold. Yeah, sure. And 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 just to uh, on, on what Jules was saying before, like I, I started in sort of in the kind of the sort of carceral humanist reformist reform space when I was very young and in, pol- in policy work. And it was sort of reading the claims of, of, of this risk. You know, we were kind of promoting these risk assessment tools uh, in that work in the, in the mid early mid 2000s. And it just really bugged me sort of what we were, what we were claiming about these things. And that's sort of what led me, Mm. um, sort of led me down this path of like, is that really what they do? And and is that evidence really that good? Um, and so I think the part of, it was just one of the many things that, you know, made me an abolitionist, but I think, you know, the kind of goal of this type of research is to kind of use their own terms and their own methods against them, uh, frankly, and Mm. um, to try to, so like, and you can kind of, you can kind of see in the progression of these studies (laughs) where I, I, I start kind of using more like, you know, I switch from criminal justice system to criminal legal system, you know, and you can kind of see my progression. Mm. Um, but it, but part of that was also to try to was to actually try to speak to the maybe like middle third of technocrats and policymakers who like could potentially be persuaded that these things were were not really all they were cracked up to be. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, just kind of, to kind of reinforce this in your inside kind of this is definitely like an attempt to to kind of to fuck with this a little bit from the inside. But yeah, so in terms of uh, who the players are, so the kind of forebearers of the risk needs responsivity model are Andrews and Bonta, who were psychologists in the, pretty sure they began this work in like the late 80s, early 90s. um, And it really uh, picked up steam among their sort of students and collaborators. So there are, you know, there's a whole sort of progeny of, people that they mentored and trained and, and, and sort of aligned folks um, who have built on this model. Um, but I think just kind of knowing Andrews and Bonta is, is, is sufficient as sort of the main uh, progenitors of, of this whole framework. So they sold it as sort of, you know, uh, a way to most efficiently target limited resources, you know, target uh, supervision resources to the highest risk people, uh, connect them ideally to services that would reduce their risk um, and therefore reduce crime and reduce crime rates. Um, and then later, they even made bolder claims that adopting this risk framework, this risk prediction framework uh, throughout the criminal legal system would actually prevent crime. Um, 
And so, so it was sort of this, it, it was both the claim that you could reduce risk simply by looking at things that were associated with rearrest and reincarceration was dubious to me. Um, but then this claim that it would actually prevent, you could actually prevent crime and sort of be agnostic to the moral and political context in social context in which this was all happening, which was their other claim. It was like, you know, this is just data driven. It's numbers, it's evidence-based. Um, you don't have to really concern yourself with like the, pro- you know, inherent structural racism, classism, <laughs> like police violence, like all that stuff. You don't really have to worry about that because we're, we're, we're getting at the root causes here, the origins of, of criminal behavior. And we can just basically like cognitive behavioral therapy people into you know, into, into being less criminal. Um, that's it. That, that's a huge and hyperbolic, uh, uh, exaggeration of, of their, of, of what they say, but it's kind of how I took it. Um, I mean, (laughs) if you read their work, they, they claim this is a crime. I mean, it's, it sounds like they watched minority report and they were like, you know, that's another way we could sell our tool (laughs) that we own the IP for, you know, it's, it's like pre-crime detection. Like, you know, it it has a, a magical realist aspect to it. Um, and yet it's something that a lot of people, have bought into yeah yeah well and it has that also i mean i think there's just in the larger much like if we zoom all the way out to the super huge macro environment going on here too that you know the the sort of reformist humanist tradition or the way that kind of progressive kind of small l liberal um tools often come about uh, precisely because they're seen as compassionate uh, and also at the same time that there's this kind of, you know, fantasy, a much older, larger fantasy of social science or of empiricism and tools kind of being able to like as if like we as human beings can engineer a kind of abstract machine um, that transcends all of our faults and problems. And so that like, well, if we know judges are really, you know, just exercise an overwhelming degree of discretionary power and, you know, bureaucrats within the criminal system can just sort of make snap judgments and kind of rule by, you know, through those then, well, isn't an abstract, you know, assessment tool so much more uh, free of bias, right? As if like we're exactly, able to construct yeah. bias-free things. Mm-hmm. And then it, and then it just, you know, the one other thing I'd layer on top of this kind of gorgeous neoliberal cake, right? Because I was so struck by how you pointed out that it seems like, right, part of what happens is that this approach is sort of on the upswing, even as it's sort of found out that um, that particular personality disorder diagnosis actually like isn't really <laughs> widespread amongst people who are being criminalized. Um, but one way we might understand the way that it still got taken up is also it just offers a kind of ready-made neoliberal policy solution. It produces efficiency, right? It exactly. takes. Um, yeah. It takes mm-hmm. not only people out of the equation ostensibly, it also reduces the labor hours that people have to spend if they could just use an abstract rubric, right? You can do things you know, in a faster method, you could um, move people through a system quicker, but you could also reduce spending on services in places that you could declare objectively irrelevant, right? Or yeah, unhelpful yeah. Um, to the, whatever the, you know, suppo- supposed mission of of the criminal system is, which, you know, in that sense, right, the lack of follow through on providing all of the services that were originally supposed to come, 
you know, in the wake of, of being assessed is, is sort of, you know, not so ironic, but sort of kind of, I don't know, I was about to say predictable, but then yeah. that's a word that is, is harder and harder <laughs> for me to use during this conversation, thankfully. It's, a, it's such a good point because the whole idea, the, one of the other ways that, that the, the sort of promoters of this work um, and these tools sold it was that, you know, we're not just predicting things that are like these static characteristics that are unchangeable, mm-hmm. like someone's arre- like someone's arrest arrest history, right? Like you can't change someone's arrest history. Um, you know, set aside that that's probably the strongest predictor, right? But you you can't you can't change someone's arrest history, but you can change their impulsivity. You can change their substance use. Um, you can change their aggression, and so. These were these were sold as like manipulable risk factors that could you could intervene on, um, and that's again where there were some sort of breakdowns in logic and methods, right? Like just because it's manipulable doesn't mean that it's actually a cause. Um, and even if it is a cause, even if it is a cause, um, changing it might not have the same effect um, as its presence. Um, and this also came up a lot for me because the, the work that I had talked about earlier, the policy work um, that I was involved with was really also focused on people with mental illnesses and serious mental illnesses and how these risk tools, the criminogenic risk tools were being applied to that group. And there was mm-hmm. this debate that this debate came up in the literature. Like, is it, do, do people with mental illness, are they overrepresented in the legal system and in jails and prisons because of untreated symptoms or because they just have like more of the criminogenic risks that all the other people in the legal system has. And, you know, it, it turns out that um, like this debate doesn't matter because the vast majority of people who are uh, involved in the legal system are there because of mass mass criminalization and mass incarceration. Right? It doesn't, like their, their symptoms or their criminogenic risks like are not what got them swept up in the legal system. And so this whole idea that you could like give someone substance use treatment or mental health treatment and, and reduce that, that part of their criminogenic risk, and you could um, reduce their impulsivity and aggression with cognitive behavioral therapy and reduce that part of their risk. Like it doesn't matter if like you have an $11 billion policing budget in the city and the police are going to arrest people for whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this whole, the whole idea that the, the selling this as like a manipulable risk factor that you can intervene upon and reduce risk was completely detached from like, how much are we policing? How much are we criminalizing like quality of life? How much are we criminalizing poverty and houselessness and, and all of these things? And like the idea that you could not attend to those things and somehow reduce arrests or incarceration was just sort of like a huge breakdown in logic to me. And I think was also part of this neoliberal worldview that that you were talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, this is in a way part of a broader framework that we're often trying to poke holes in here on this show, which is sort of how you can use scientific objectivity as this kind of veneer that can then take something that is systemically unjust and, you know, racist, objectively extractionist, you know, really terrible, horrible system that needs to be undone. And you can say, listen, we have this tool and we can filter that injustice through scientific objectivity and that will produce justice as a result. And, This feels like 
a ridiculous idea when you lay it out like that. But obviously, that's not how it's ever laid out by these folks. It's always, you know, proposed as a kind of, yeah, well, you know, we have to change things, but we could do this first and we could do this right now. And this will get people the things that they need. And it also then reinscribes that that scarcity that this kind of theoretical framework and tool is even intended to address, right? The idea of having the scarce resources that are going to have to be metered out. Of course, they call these resources. And when they say resources, we're talking about things that are you know, traumatic events where people are criminalized. We're talking about the, you know, the difference between um, being released, you know, to be able to just walk around wherever after you get out of prison or if you're going to be released with an ankle monitor or what kind of supervision your parole officer is going to do, you know, what kind of resources mm-hmm. you're going to have access to. So it's like when we talk about, oh, you know, this is this is a tool to deal with the limited resources, right? It not only sort of naturalizes that state of imposed scarcity, quote unquote, but it then kind of frames the injustices themselves that this empirical tool is attempting to like use scientific objectivity to translate into some sort of, you know, race neutral, gender neutral, um, class neutral arm of justice, right? Like actuarial justice warrior. Like that that then in of itself also like constructs an ironclad reality where all of those horrible things we're talking about are quote unquote resources that are scarce and also that any resource and program like this is always going to be plagued by scarcity as these kind of like phenomena of of nature and law and gravity in the same way that this um you know this quote unquote data driven tool locates like the source of crime and it within people themselves within their behavior and their personalities yeah, absolutely. And, and and I think, you know, Andrews and Bonta in their textbook explicitly say that they, they're not concerned about issues of justice. They just take the world as it is, as a fixed given. And they say within that, within that uh, given, here's how you can like, you know, here, here's how you can kind of uh, tinker is, is how I would put it. That's not what they Ooh. say. Um, <laughs> um, and I think, you know, I think this gets kind of this really hits sort of one of the, probably one of the greatest accomplishments of neoliberal social science has been its conflation of where individuals fall within a distribution of risk with where the the mean of the entire risk distribution is. Um, And so to just to give you an example, um, in a population where everyone smoked five packs of cigarettes a day, um, lung cancer would seem to be, would, would appear to be a genetic disease, right? Like the, the predictor of mm. the strongest predict, the strongest, yeah, right. The strongest predictors of lung cancer would, would appear to be individual biological differences of, um, because smoking was, is ubiquitous, right? It's a universal exposure. Um, and so you, you could have, you could develop risk profiles and risk assessments for people within a population of, of, of heavy smokers. And you could probably end up categorizing people into low, medium, and high risk based on, on the characteristics that would appear, uh, given that everyone smoked. Um, hmm. That is what neoliberal social science is would have us believe about things like uh, arrest, recidivism, reincarceration, rearrest, um, is that 
all we're doing in a population where the where the where the whole distribution of risk of uh, being criminalized and exposed to the legal system is shifted so far to the right. All all we're going to focus on is these like inter individual variations in factors. Given that mass criminalization and mass incarceration is essentially a, a, a ubiquitous exposure, right? Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what what neoliberal social science does is say, don't worry, don't think about shifting the whole distribution to the left, right? Like, don't think about the the causes of the distribution's mean, or don't 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 think about the causes of why the distribution is so far skewed to the right. Um, that's not really the job of social science. That's the job of like uh, like politics, basically. Um, and so they kind of absolve themselves of of they absolve social science of attending to those questions of of like why is the distribution where it is and focus exclusively on like individuals placed within the distribution. It just has me thinking so much of some of the, you know, some of the things that I've, I've come across in the archive studying like the early years of the eugenics movement um, mm-hmm. and how that gave rise to the kind of interest in biostatistical methods as a policy instrument, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that's, um, I'm thinking specifically kind of of how this whole assessment tool reminds me so much of Francis Galton's famous or rather infamous pricker um, system that he used Mm -hmm. (laughs) to create a physical record of his observations in order to construct one of the first foundational, you know, projects that he did that becomes the basis for many future iterative um, methods of not just eugenic study, but just statistical methods in general, um, where he, you know, he went around the UK with this little pin in his pocket that he specially modified with a paper ripped into the shape of a cross. And he observed women around him uh, in order to, you know, take notes as to whether they were, quote, in one of three classes, good, medium, or bad. (laughs) Um, And he would, you know, then when he got home, each, you know, each good, medium, and bad had its own section on the cross, and then you held it from one thing. And so in his pocket, like a fucking pervert, he's like sticking little dots into a piece of paper whenever he sees a woman to judge whether she's a good, medium, or bad woman. And he creates this map of attractiveness. And he writes in his diary that, you know, London ranked the highest for beauty and Aberdeen ranked the lowest. And what eugenics Uh. actually becomes is, you know, really a system of using statistical methods, what we would call now statistical methods, using data, observation, and wild fucking bold abstract correlation that reflected the class positions, biases, and flawed assumptions of the person initiating the study into a kind of reified scientific proof that really was trying to prove that the way that the class structure in the UK and then later in the United States was, that income inequality was the way it was because it deserved to be that way. And that people who were rich, people who were powerful, people who were in control of society were, were in control of society because they deserved to be, because they were superior. And 
it also kind of naturalized the norms of upper classes as what was normal behavior. And then Mm -hmm. set about to prove that hypothesis through data. And so what what actually is is I'm thinking of so much here is how that Pricker experiment to create Galton's beauty map of the British Isles, which is what he fucking called it, <laughs> um, really then becomes translated into a lot of the foundational observations that become the basis of work that starts to create large matrices of various like feeble-mindedness um mm-hmm. you know like uh, the like a you know the kind of like spectrums of feeble mindedness the the classification systems for understanding different types of intellectual and developmental disabilities and how remarkably often similar some of these observations are to Galton's original observations, right? Like that poverty, lack of education, the negative social determinants of health, exposure to pollution, exposure to, you know, the, the changes in life by, you know, the work conditions of the industrial factory. None of this was a problem in the worldview of the eugenicists, and they use data to explain it away and locate it instead in a kind of biological destiny into an argument about these things not being a structural problem, but being, you know, a justified expression of natural heredity. Yep. Yeah, that's such a good parallel. Um, And, you know, Matt, essentially, uh, like another way of, of, of putting uh, what I said about distributions is like you, you, you're essentially mapping social arrangements um, and the operation of system, social systems onto individuals uh, without acknowledging and, and then claiming that that the individual that, that it's inherent to the individual. Right. Um, and in Galton's case, it was biological in in the case of Andrews and Bonta and the, the criminogenic risk assessment, it's it's psychological, right? Like you're you're mapping the operation, you're you're mapping like uh, the sort of patterns of investment and disinvestment of 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 neoliberal capitalism onto people's psychologies, and then claiming that you've discovered like the origins of deviant behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and and you know maybe one way to mark. One of the signal differences between the the Galton, you know, the era of Galton and that, you know, the the kind of scientific research that buttressed the eugenics movement, you know, a hundred plus hundred, you know, some odd years ago versus today is the centrality of risk, right? As the kind of key anchoring mm-hmm. concept. And and risk is really, you know, like there's a way that rightfully, we can sneer at Galton's, you know, just like crude, you know, sort of like, I, I, you know, here are the things that I see and don't like, and I'm going to, you know, just pin them to entire groups of people. Um, but risk is, you know, precisely as you're saying, Seth, because it's like, you know, this psychologized concept. I mean, it's risk is also importantly, uh, uh, technically hypothetical, right? It's the probability that something will occur. Um, and then, you know, identifying individuals as I know it's not literally identifying them as risky, but associating risks with certain individuals, right? Sort of pins this hypothetical future event to them in a way that, you know, leads to similar outcomes to that very old eugenic way of thinking. Um, but I was curious about, you know, how, 
sort of you work with that concept of risk because there there is a quote that you gave in a in a piece um, summarizing some of your research that really caught my eye and I'm curious you know if I'm if I'm even sort of reading this the right way or reading too much into it because I used to be an English professor but um, <laughs> you know um, you, you you mention I mean you you use well so the sentences you're, you know you're talking about about some of the implications of your research um and you say that, quote, we need to focus on what puts people at risk of criminogenic risk. And one of those things arguably is current criminal justice policy. And, and I just kind of loved, again, the way that you you sort of, I thought, maybe spun everything on its head, you know, from the perspective of this academic field saying like, what are the, what are, you know, what, what puts people at risk of being, uh, what puts people at risk of criminogenic risk mm-hmm. rather than starting with, mm-hmm. right, um, the premise that criminogenic risk in and of itself is a revelatory measure. Um, and so I'm just sort of curious, like, like to you, is there a useful project of sort of, you know, not just critiquing risk, obviously, but um, trying to reframe or maybe yeah, reframe the measure or what kind of risk we value in order to critique this sort of uh, very, mm. very much kind of yeah. eugenic um, attribution of, of risk to people as if it just springs forth from their constitution and instead say, what would, what would it be the alternative? Like, what are the structural and social conditions that put entire populations of people at risk of being identified as bearing criminogenic risk? Yep. It's a great, it's, a, it's such a good question. Um, and, and, you know, I'll just say we don't have criminogenic risk assessment for like white collar crime. Right. So mm-hmm. right. That, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that gives you, you know, that's a, that's a well-rehearsed line, but like, I think that gives you some, some sense of, 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 of what I think about that. And I, I also just want to say that, um, the putting people at risk of risk is comes from, um, Bruce Lincoln, Joe Fallon, and and their work on fundamental causes mm-hmm. of, of of health, um, and so it's it's sort of a refrain that we we use in social epidemiology quite a bit. Um, and I think what the, the, the what it functions to do is to say like focusing on the the most proximate risk to the outcome, right? Like focusing on like mm. what, focusing on whether someone was like impulsive on the street corner when they got arrested versus, you know, versus whether they were less impulsive is a choice, right? It's a, it's a choice to focus on the most proximate uh, risk just to the outcome, just like it's a choice to focus on um, people's individual life, you know, so-called lifestyle behaviors um, rather than on like the regulatory framework in which people are behaving. Right. Um, yeah. So like that, I think one 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 goal is to say like you don't just have have to focus on the closest risk to the outcome. You can move upstream, and and then once you do move upstream, you start to see that that the risks that put people at risk of lots of stuff are basically the same, um, and that's uh, you know racial capitalism, <laughs> um, and and you know lack of housing, lack of living wage jobs, lack of health insurance, lack of. Um, uh, uh, meaningful social so, social infrastructure um, and so forth, and so the idea, like that, those things are are static and fixed background characteristics, is also a, a choice. Um, mm. And so the the idea of thinking about like what what puts people at risk of criminogenic risk is just to kind of move move us upstream to like to to, to focus on these more fundamental 
drivers. And then you, you then you start to see like, oh, actually, a lot of this stuff doesn't have to do with individuals at all. It has to do with police departments and, and prison industrial complex and um, state state budgets uh, and so forth. Um, mm. so, th- so that's one function of it. And I think, you know, the other thing I'll just say is that I am not... I, this might be a, this might sound a little naive, but I, I am not opposed to using knowledge to predict uh, to predict things in, in a way that tries to like improve people's lives. Um, but I think that would require just in, 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 at least when we're talking about mass criminalization and mass incarceration, it would require sort of flipping everything on its head and saying like the, these any any risk that we're predicting. Um, based on our knowledge of the criminal legal system and people's exposure, people being exposed to it, um, should be used um, in the service of abolition, in the service of mm. connecting people to resources and services and material con- material improvements uh, in their lives. Um, and I think that would be a true, you know, that, that would be one way to use risk um, for prevention in, in a genuine way and not such a disingenuous way as I think mm. the, the the framers of criminogenic risk assessment put it. Um, so, so I guess what I'm saying is like, it, you know, uh, in our socialist utopia, like I, <laughs> I think we can use, I think we can use risk um, and empirical, empirical knowledge and empirical social science in, in useful ways. Um, but um we need to start, I, I think we need to start like, it, there, there's a role for sort of left-wing empirical science to kind of uh, push push the field in that direction or to start mm. imagining what that might look like um, and not just let the sort of um, the neoliberal carceral um, economists like have a monopoly on, on these quantitative tools Mm. yeah no i mean i I think in in a lot of ways like it's often easy to think that like the kind of criticism that we're levying is like very totalizing um or like that we're like ah like just merely measuring something is bad (laughs) and produces harm like and and a lot of times bad faith uh uh engagement will come through after an episode like this and they'll say like you just Mm -hmm. think all measurement is bad and it's like no it's that you know the empiricism and the kind of sciencism itself is used to dress up a bunch of bullshit and Mm -hmm. call it neutral Mm. and call it Mm -hmm. apolitical and justify organized abandonment extractive abandonment criminalization justify not acting on all sorts of other things right not just justifying action but justifying inaction and then the Mm -hmm. whole sort of process in and of itself tidies this all up as you know more ironclad and one of the things that i was so struck by is you know on the doj's website where they kind of give an explanation of what this kind of assessment is for people who are experiencing it. And they're really Mm -hmm. trying to like reassure the reader that this is fair, you know, and and that this is like the best thing for them. One of the things that they 
say is, um, quote, decisions guided by risk assessments can be viewed as more defensible and more credible than subjective, less transparent decision making Mm -hmm. processes. So it's it's also about the credibility and how that credibility is constructed and for what and to what end. Right. That is the actual Mm. problem. The measurement is itself fucking neutral. Like data doesn't do anything all on its own. You have to do something with that information that you collect. Right. Like Galton's pricker was just a fucking piece of paper out of a pervert's <laughs> pocket until he interpreted that data and made it mean something. And those exactly. meanings are what's actually, you know, the object of critique, right? Not the measurement itself, though we can go for the measurement sometime and critique that. But more broadly, like what we're talking about here is not just like, you know, a kind of like, yes or no on empiricism, right? Like it's about really mm-hmm. what to what ends are these claims being made and how are they sort of justifying either, um, you know, processes that that politically um, we want to stop, right? As a, as a left or as abolitionists or as folks fighting for health justice, right? Like anyone fighting for health justice who believes in in the right to public health and to like a, a healthy environment with housing for all and safe air and clean water and access to food and access to education and freedom from debt, like that a component of that, you know, is inhibited by these kinds of um, large behemoth empirically coded ideas, right? That that tell you mm-hmm. like you have to work within what you what we are doing with now. Take the world as it as it is as a given and then here's a tool to work with that. Like I feel like part mm-hmm. of you know the the thing we're actually really railing against here is like how these kinds of tools like function politically and socially just when they're out within the world under the conditions that we all live in and that we're all struggling against politically. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. And I think the, you know, again, the, the achievement of, of neoliberal social science is that it, it, it has sort of, um, claimed the banner of neutrality and objectivity, um, where it doesn't take much, you just scratch a little bit below the surface and it's like, actually, no, this is a, uh, a regressive, psychologically reductionist, biologically reductionist um, justification for the status quo. And I think if there's a role for left-wing uh, empirical uh, social science to push against this, it, it has to just put its cards on the table and say, like, mm. we're not, we're not, we're not pretending, we're not pretending that any of this is objective or neutral. We're acknowledging that it's all political, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. we have a different goal than you. And we think your goal is is carceral and fascist, and ours is emancipatory, and and you know, uh, and we're going to use these these empirical tools toward that end, and we're going to do it transparently, um, and like you you can keep like you can keep hiding behind the sort of the 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 banner of neutrality and scientific objectivity, but like we we can still we can still pick apart your the quality of your, your work, you know? 
Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm so, so glad you put it that way. Um, and it feels helpful again, just to, and I'm so glad you made this, this connection be like understanding then that the uptake of data and studies in the policy arena, mm-hmm. you know, if we understand in particular the way that neoliberal technocrats, like looking at you, DOJ, I mean, just looking at you, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. current federal administration in particular, that benefits politically, rhetorically. Um, at the level of optics from drawing a distinction, you know, between itself and right wing political movements as, oh, no, well, we're the ones who just rely on data and science, then that there's actually a really, you know, helpful alibi in sort of, you know, the thing that policymakers, to some extent, but definitely political actors, um, you know, get to benefit from, which is that they don't have to or don't even necessarily need to know what's inside the black box. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes better, more efficacious, you know, to just take that gap between what the data actually says and the way it's been implemented for granted, because it also provides a kind of political cover, mm-hmm. right? And it's sort of that question for academics and their responsibility is sort of like, well, your work is being used this way. Um, so either that upsets you <laughs> um, because, you know, you're you're committed to the craft or like it upsets you politically because it's been used politically in ways that are contrary um, even to its own, you know, uh, its own findings. Right. But and so by choosing not to sort of go after that, then you're endorsing implicitly that politics. Um, and so that 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 I, yeah, I totally love you know, I, again, I'm just such a nerd and, and in, in my corner of the humanities, I'm, I'm very committed to, to certain forms of left-wing empiricism. They're really useful. They're really helpful for thinking. Um, and also, yeah, we don't have to be so afraid, um, of putting the cards on the table just because the sort of centrist technocratic neoliberal rationalism of the last 40 years has sort of surrendered putting cards on the table for its own purposes. Um, but I kind of wanted to ask this question that feels, I don't know, I hope hope like delightfully <laughs> perverse, I guess, in this context, which is like, can you predict the future of uh, like, I'm just sort of curious, like to get your read on some of the possible directions, you know, that that of policy applications of this work. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, I don't know, I'm, I'm just constantly my cards on the table are I'm very irritated by um by the kind of manufacturing of a media narrative around AI um, that's mm-hmm. sort of been this outgrowth, you know, from really, really superficial kind of fantastical discussions of algorithms and their functions, just all of these sorts of black box, um, non ostensibly non-human tools that are supposedly already here doing so many things that they're not actually doing. But on the other hand, are often holy grail pursuits, um, you know, of, of, yeah. So it's like, I'm not super, I mean, let me think of a better way of putting that, right? Like I'm less concerned as a university professor that a chat bot will one day replace, you know, my classroom teaching, much more concerned about the desire for algorithmic predictive policing models, you know, mm-hmm. at the municipal level mm-hmm. um, in the city of Baltimore where I live. Um, you know, so like those, those, I, I'm just sort of curious though, because this is, this to me is one of these great examples that as a historian, I'm always like, right. It's like, oh, we don't have to have a fancy, 
you know, futuristic um, computer, you know, we don't have to have fancy artificial intelligence, right? Like social science and statistical (laughs) methodologies can already do this predictive risk assessment work. And so I'm just sort of curious, though, as someone who actually is embedded in that, like, do you, uh, yeah, what's your sense of, you know, absent, you know, important critical left-wing research and pushback and organizing? Like, where are some of the troubling directions that you see, um, yeah, Mm. this kind of risk assessment model and criminogenic risk uh, modeling, where where did some of the directions that you see it moving that, that concern you? And and do any of those overlap with like the, the fetish for AI or, um, or for other algorithmic tech uh, in this moment? Or do you see those ultimately as, as pretty disconnected? Uh, it's a really good question. I think like the Andrews and Bonta criminogenic risk assessment instruments, like the level of services inventory that were sort of created in the 90s are, are really sort of like the early precursors to um, mm-hmm. the kind of algorithmic AI driven um, risk assessments. Um, I think uh, the sort of the, the entire sort of psychology of criminal conduct, which is their book, their textbook, that explo- that introduces um, risk needs responsivity and, and risk assessment. Like the fact that they felt the need to even develop a theory based on the empirical, the sort of empirically driven um, r- risk assessments, I think speaks to the change in the sort of sort of changing times, right? Like they mm. still felt they still felt like they had to develop a theory to explain oh. their algorithm their algorithm, right? Um oh, yeah. where <laughs> no, keep going. But oh god. <laughs> where, where, whereas now I think there it, we've actually sort of um we've entered a phase and the and I think the algorithmic justice movement that emerged in the yeah mid 2010s and late 2010s is is, has really been on top of this is like they're not people don't even feel like they need to come up with a a theory after the fact to justify their algorithm they're just saying like it's just the data because we have big data now Mm. and we have so it's like the data we don't even need a theory we don't even need it's just you know the data are you know the data speak for themselves and as i think the algorithmic Justice Movement has been so good at pointing out is that like data don't speak at all, actually. Um, and mm. people interpret data. Data aren't actually like real. They're, mm-hmm. they're human, they're human mm. creations and what we choose to measure and what goes into the model. And like, like all of this is, is sort of, I think, well, well-worn critiques that come out of the, the algorithmic justice movement um, uh, apply here, but I do think that like we will, we are seeing sort of, you know, facial recognition and predictive policing and, um, you know, predictive uh, uh, like algorithms for, um, you know, uh, pre-child detention and, and these sorts of things. And and like, I, I don't, I don't know for a fact, but I'm sure that like Comstat is using, in New York City is using, uh-huh using algorithms in ways that we would all find uh, quite, quite horrific. Um, and so I think like, I, I think like the, the, the train has left the station, but there is still like more awareness now of, of the ways in which algorithms are, are biased and reproduce the biases of the humans that, that, that code them. Um, and so I think the, the sort of the, the, the terrain of that struggle is, sort of 
shifting now into into fighting implementation rather than um, like whether or not it's going to happen because I think it's 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 already it's already happening. Um, yeah. <laughs> what this really makes me think about maybe leads me to the next question that I have for you, which you can also be like, I really don't want to talk about that. <laughs> but you know, off and on in this discussion, you've brought up sort of a it seems like an maybe I'm projecting an internal back and forth, a little conflict narrative, uh, you know, of like sort of what the what is the use case of 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 trying out things that um are meant to maybe be appropriated into policy solutions right like you talked about mm -hmm. sort of your early work being more optimistic about that but still kind of thinking of of all those things and and one thing that i i would love for us to kind of maybe end on today is sort of how this fits into also setting a political agenda um, and setting an agenda for what is, you know, possible and what kind of policies are, you know, not just feasible, but correct and right and reproducible. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that's the, the other thing that's going on here is that this theory wasn't just sold to a bunch of rubes who were tricked on, you know, like this isn't just like a grift mm -hmm. that happened. I mean, it is a grift in some ways, but like, it's not just like intentionally a direct sort of like they were sold, they were duped, you know, this kind of risk assessment, this kind of theory of crime and of the policy solutions for managing a criminal legal system that is, you know, intent on sort of targeting specific populations and then recapturing them throughout their life, extracting time and their fucking life um, to build the economy and the state, ultimately, you know, thinking to Ruthie's work and stuff. But mm -hmm. I'm also thinking to to Phil Phil's work here, our co-host Phil Rocco, who, you know, he wrote this paper, it was a while ago, he wrote an essay called Policy Craft um, that's about Medicare for All. But he he wrote that, you know, that the the ability to sort of define what the policy alternatives are and what policies can be judged by and and how we define sort of successful uh, policy is also what's at stake here and part of like the critique of data driven evidence based like policies or practices or whatever because I think you know the kind of power that is also exercised here is not just a direct like biopolitical power of of you know incarcerating people and controlling their social and health outcomes through you know mm -hmm. predictive um statistical analysis but it's also about creating like an imaginary of what criminal policy is or criminal justice is that can only kind of contain things that are like it in effect mm -hmm. and in harms. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a really good question. And I think, you know, I, I would start by saying that I think the whole idea of criminogenic is mm -hmm. um, is 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 regressive and and carceral and what we're what and we should do away with it right i, I don't mm -hmm. think criminogenic risk assessment is a useful 
thing um, because it, it conflates criminalization with criminality. Um, and so I think starting starting from there, um, saying we're going to do away with like the psychologically reductionist view of, of crime um, and recognize that in the era of mass criminalization and mass car- incarceration, it matters less sort of what any particular individual's propensities are and more sort of how they're being targeted by a system mm-hmm. um, and how and how they're being criminalized uh, is is should be the starting point. Um, from there, I would say, like, and and this is very hypothetical, but I, I would say, like, to me, it's not, you know, I don't think people should be held pretrial detention at all. So I don't yeah. want to develop a tool. I, I'm not interested in develop, de- developing a tool to, you know, for, you know, assign risk for who can be released pretrial detention, because I think nobody should be held pretrial detention. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, and I, so I think like the left needs to kind of draw the line where it's, where, you know, it should decide where it needs to draw the lines and abolitionists can, you know, decide where to draw the line. But that said, like, I'm not, I'm not entirely like, could a risk assessment with other, other, with, you know, other inputs um, help predict like, where there might be um, a drug supply that has fentanyl or like where, where, you know, where overdoses might happen in a city um, based on various inputs or could it predict, you know, who um, needs uh, supportive housing rather than just, uh, or housing first rather than, you know, free social housing in our sort of left-wing policy space. Like if, if we're going to imagine a future where we have, so, you know, adequate social housing um, and uh, adequate healthcare, can risk assessments be used to like help provide people things that they need to live freely, to live free, good lives? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like I think so, but I think, um, but I think we were, we, and I think it's it's worthwhile to kind of think through that. Like, but um, but I think the immediate task is to is to actually start drawing lines about um, where these algorithms are going to be deployed and 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 sort of reject the premise um, of of their deployment um, for things like pretrial detention or um, you know whether or not someone should uh, get the electronic ankle monitoring bracelet, like nobody should get the, right. Right, Should get the, um, so that's kind of what I meant by flipping the whole thing on its head. Like if we can, Mm -hmm. like maybe there is a use for risk and empirical knowledge of risk, um, for like giving people things they need to live free and, and healthy lives. But, um, but yeah, I, I yeah. think, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, like, you could you could use risk analysis, uh, like, okay, so we're in our health communist utopia. We could use the risk yeah. analysis to estimate, you know, what kind of provisioning resources we're going to need and then make sure that we're investing <laughs> the, like, you know, social, intellectual, and personnel infrastructure in advance to get that built up you know, assuming that we're going to need X many people to like meet this need and adequately provision it. Like we can use this as a predictive 
planning tool, right? Not as a tool of yeah. sorting and categorizing and, you know, reifying the the artificial scarcity that capitalism is really built on um, and, and sustains as a kind of like core um, conceptual limitation politically to anything that's on the table. And I mean, you know, the, the thing that I, I feel like often folks on the left can get really hung up on is, is like, you know, you'll hear like, okay, well, like this critique is fine, but this is just going to be whack-a-mole. You know, we just hit one thing, mm -hmm. you just critique one thing, something else will pop up. And that part of like what's going on is that also like, you know, this this has to be considered within a broader theory of power. And and that, you know, yeah. theory of power is reflective of, of the fact that these are the kinds of tools that policy policymakers are asking for, right? They don't understand them, but mm -hmm. they want this is the kind of policy that they want, right? And this is what mm -hmm. our political mm -hmm. economy demands of but the people in power, because that is yeah. an important component of the biopolitical colonial power of the United States is this ability to, you know, control the population efficiently and statistically by putting people into broad risk categories and then allocating need based on, you know, uh, biases and assumptions and distortions of of what that category is, what the kind of risk they pose to, to the normal uh, continuing operations of American capitalism is and, you know, what their assessed need actually is and what the source of that need is and whether or not they should be held responsible for that need or if that need is a responsibility of the collective, uh, you know, general public body politic, whatever. And, and if we're thinking of like, you know, how these kind of tools work in the world, right, very much part of it is like, that these also fit within a broader understanding of how power operates and how, you know, more than just, um, you know, critique and understanding, you know, what's wrong with the current systems. Yeah, it might feel like whack-a-mole, but as you're saying, <laughs> Seth, like, it also leads us to these conversations where we can draw very mm. firm lines, which is, you know, like, yeah, no fucking police. Let's go there, right? Like, let's... Like, abolish prison or, or even, like let's not or, worry about yeah. risk assessment here like let's build a public health workforce instead right like that these are the kinds yeah. of conversations that we can mm -hmm. go to through critique right like that's why speculative marxist critique is really important like as a cultural part of like the left right is like looking mm -hmm. at the problems and you know describing the problems accurately not to propose like tweaks to make that less icky, but to like decide what we don't want and what we could build instead that's entirely different, you know, and breaks beyond <laughs> the boundaries of, you know, what is up for debate in our current political economy. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And I, I was going to say, like, you know, I, maybe the one exception um, that I would have is like, I'm not opposed to you know, if someone could get the data to develop a risk assessment tool to predict which cops are going to engage in violence or to predict <laughs> which cops are going to engage in frivolous, you know, frivolous stops or which probation departments are going to frivolously revoke someone's uh, probation because they like missed a, a doctor's appointment or something like I, I I'm all for using risk like expropriating the, it yeah <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm all for that I'm all for that. <laughs> turn risk assessment into a weapon yeah exactly yes I love it 
I mean, it already is, so why not? Yes. <laughs> is there anything that we didn't get a chance to get to today, Seth, that you wanted to make sure that, that we had a chance to talk about? This has been really fun. I don't want to keep you too long. I know it's already 1244, um, actually, but... No, this was great. Was oh, a lot this of fun. was so fun. Okay, Jules, yeah. any final points? Oh, no, I've just been nerding out so much this entire time. But I thought that was also a really, that would be, that would be a really nice place to wrap up, I think, as well. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. All right. Perfect. I'll do my little outro spiel. Here we go. All right. Sure. I think that is the perfect place to leave it for today. Seth, thank you so, so, so much for coming back on the mm-hmm. show. This has been so much fun. Such a great conversation. My pleasure. And Thanks also, for having me. And also, listeners, if you want to follow Seth, he is on Twitter at S underscore J underscore Prins. To support the show, become a patron, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode, an entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, Pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, will catch you Monday in the patron bonus feed. Everyone else, we will see you next week. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. 